Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Welcome to Movie House Concessions on the MHN Podcast Network, where each episode we pull a random film from the display case to see if it tastes as fresh as the day it was released. I'm Patrick. And I'm Chad. And today's episode, we're reviewing Basic Instinct, directed by Paul Verhoeven and starring Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. And Chad, do you have a revealing summary for us? Very, very revealing and provocative. All right, please continue. Okay. Well, Johnny Boz, a San Francisco-based 1960s rock star, is in a heated sexual romp with a mysterious blonde woman. Boz allows his partner to tie his hands to his bedpost while, or with a white silk Hermes scarf, just like Patrick owns. From there, the woman mounts Boz in the quote-unquote cowgirl position and vigorous, vigorously rides the musician then stabs him 31 times in the torso, face, and eye, killing Johnny Boz. Homicide detectives Nick Curran and Gus Moran, uh, played by Michael Douglas and George DeZunza, respectively, arrive at Boz's palatial state via the streets of San Francisco to investigate the murder and try to provide law and order. The detectives are told Boz was last seen leaving his nightclub with his girlfriend, Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone. Trammell, a well-known crime novelist and amateur psychologist, is a San Francisco socialite who inherited $110 million from her parents when they died in a mysterious boat explosion. Nick and Gus interview Trammell, who claims she and Boz were merely F-buddies <laughs> for over a year. Catherine states she was with Boz after they left the nightclub and did not murder him. Nick and Gus learn from their fellow detectives that Catherine had previously written a novel about a rock star being murdered while in bed with a woman while they were having sex who just happened to use an ice pick. Trammell, during a second interview, passes a lie detector test and pushes the notion that her novel is an alibi and a copycat killer is using her book to frame her. Nick learns during the interview process that Catherine is intrigued by him and wants to use him as a character in her next novel. Catherine is aware, via her extensive research, of Nick's dubious past with the San Francisco Police Department. She knows that Nick was involved in four questionable police-related shootings over the span of five years, is under constant examination by internal affairs, and may have been under the influence of alcohol and or drugs during these shootings. The media nicknamed Nick the Shooter while he was under investigation for these shootings, so Catherine chooses to call Nick Shooter just to continuously needle him. Catherine also knows about Nick's wife killing herself during the time of his shooting spree. Meanwhile, Nick is seeking psychiatric help and uh, sexual relief from uh, the resident police psychologist, Dr. Elizabeth Garner, played by Jean Triplehorn. Beth is Nick's 
sounding board for all of his on-job and personal issues. She continues to give him glowing reviews, which helps him keep out of the grasps of uh, internal affairs. After Nick's initial encounters with Catherine, Nick has a run-in with internal affairs detective Marty Nielsen. Nielsen grills Nick about his lost sobriety, and Beth must step in between the two to keep them from coming to blows. Nick and Beth retreat to her apartment where the couple have a quick yet very physical sexual encounter. We learn afterwards that Beth knew Catherine Trammell at the University of California, Berkeley, where the two were undergraduates together. Their psychology professor was murdered with an ice pick while they were in college, but that is just one of the hundreds of details the audience is told to remember things in the long run. Beth is angered by Nick's aggressive behavior on this night and sends him away. After learning that Catherine is close friends with a woman named Hazel Dopkins, who murdered her husband and three children with a kitchen knife, Nick decides to keep a closer eye on Catherine during his investigation. Nick realizes Catherine knows too much about his past, things he only told Beth during various uh, psychological sessions or psychology sessions or therapy sessions, whatever you want to call them. So he goes to Beth for answers. Beth informs Nick she gave his psychiatric file to Lieutenant Nielsen to keep him away from Nick. Nick deduces that Nielsen then sold his file to Trammell, who is using the information for her new book. An angered Nick attacks Nielsen in his office at police headquarters and is subsequently put on administrative leave. Later that evening, a passed-out Nick awakens, is awakened by a phone call from Gus, who informs Nick that Nielsen has been shot in the head and left for dead in a Chinatown alley. Internal affairs detectives question Nick about Nielsen's murder, but he has an alibi as Beth, who checked in on Nick earlier in the evening, tells the detectives that Nick couldn't have been near Nielsen at the time of his murder. Nick is now convinced that Catherine murdered Nielsen. Nick follows Catherine to Johnny Boz's nightclub, where they end up dancing together and making out in the middle of the dance floor. The couple make their way back to Catherine's house, where they have passionate sex. Catherine pins Nick down to the bed, grabs a silk scarf, then ties his hands to the bedpost. Catherine begins to have unbridled sex with Nick in that same position I mentioned earlier, reaches behind her body, then violently throws herself forward as she orgasms. The next day, after Catherine has an argument with her homicidal girlfriend, Roxy, Nick playfully tells Catherine that he's in love with her, but will still nail her for murder. Nick is run down by Catherine's car after he has drinks and dinner with Gus. Nick chases after Trammell's car with his own until they get into a construction zone. Catherine's car goes off a bridge, flips, and crashes. When Nick opens the car door, he finds that Roxy is actually the driver and died in the crash. Catherine is very angry and distraught by Roxy's death, stating that everyone she truly cares about dies. Catherine tells Nick about a girl who she went to college with named Lisa Hoberman. Catherine explains that she and Lisa slept together one time, then Lisa became obsessed with Catherine, changing her looks to match Catherine's hairstyle. When Nick researches Lisa Hoberman, 
he finds she is actually Dr. Elizabeth Garner. Dr. Garner tells Nick she slept with Catherine the one time, but Catherine was the one who was obsessed and is evil. Nick visits Catherine at her beach house and reads part of her new book, Shooter, as it is print being printed out. Catherine tells Nick goodbye because her book is all done and his character is dead. An angered Nick joins Gus in tracking down a person who claims to be Catherine's college roommate. Gus goes into the apartment building and gets murdered by a mysterious assailant in a trench coat who uses an ice pick. Nick realizes Gus is going to be attacked in a manner like Catherine's book uh, described earlier in the evening, so he rushes into the building. When Nick finds Gus, Gus is bleeding out and dies. Just then, who shows up? Dr. Elizabeth Garner. And why does she show up? She's supposed to be meeting Gus at this apartment complex. When Nick tells Liz to show, her his, show him her hands, she reaches into her coat pocket and Nick decides to shoot her because he's scared she's going to shoot him. So she's dead, and Nick's fellow homicide detectives show up to find a blonde wig, a San Francisco Police Department trench coat, and an ice pick in a nearby stairwell. When the police search Liz's apartment, they find a 38-millimeter revolver, a stack of Catherine's books, and multiple articles about Catherine. Hmm. The now, they now believe Liz was the murderer all along who stalked and tried to frame Catherine Trammell. Catherine goes to see and overwhelm Nick. The author tells Nick she doesn't want to care for him because she's afraid she will lose him too. The couple have some wild sex with Catherine in her familiar cowgirl position. Catherine again reaches behind and throws herself forward as she orgasms. Nick tells Catherine that he wants them to F like minks, raise rugrats, and live happily ever after. Catherine says she doesn't like rugrats, so Nick dismisses the rugrats, and the couple begin to F like minks. As the film closes, the audience sees an ice pick conveniently lying on the bedroom floor, easily within Catherine's reach. The end. All right. Basic Instinct. Numbers on Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct was released on March 20th, 1992, the same day as Noises Off, Shadows and Fog by Woody Allen, and Proof. Uh, same month as Ruby, The Cutting Edge, White Men Can't Jump, Thunderheart, Beethoven, The Lawnmower Man, My Cousin Vinny, and Chad's all-time favorite film, Ladybugs. Oh, I love that soccer movie. <laughs> All right. Made on a budget of $49 million, grossed uh, over $117 million in the United States, and over $352 million worldwide. Uh, it was the ninth highest grossing film of 1992, right behind such films as Sister Act, The Bodyguard, and Wayne's World, and right in front of The League of Their Own, Unforgiven, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, was nominated for two Academy Awards, uh, best lo losing both best film editing lost to Unforgiven, best music original score lost to Aladdin. Alan Menken for that uh, score was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 th Thrills list in 2001. Ultimately, did not make the top 100. Uh, was also one of the 400 films nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions list in 2002. Uh, ultimately, Ooh. didn't make that list as well. Uh, was followed by a sequel called 
uh, creatively enough, Basic Instinct 2, with only Sharon Stone returning to reprise her role, uh, which uh, very famously bombed at the box office. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 56% critics and 63% audience. So that is the numbers on Basic Instinct. So, Chad, Basic mm-hmm. Instinct, what do you remember about this film in 1992? Uh, so I I remember the, the talk about the interrogation scene, uh, Catherine's interrogation scene, that like took over the world. Uh, um, you, you mean the, the stellar acting, the drama, yes. the, 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 yes. the police pr- trying to yes. pressure her to con- confess and her being able to... Yeah. Trade those yeah. barbs. That 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 that's what you that that that's what people were talking about. You're exactly wrong. Everybody was talking about every of her not wearing any undergarments and uncrossing her legs and then recrossing her legs and being able to see what was up her skirt. That's what everybody was talking about when they came to this movie. So it was a huge talking point. And I was in high school at the time. I think I was a sophomore. And um, it was everybody was talking about it. Anybody who got to go see it was talking about it. The news was talking about it. Now, granted, me and all my friends, we didn't get to see what it was all about until it came out on VHS. And then the fun part was everybody like rented it and then like it would have a party just to everybody to watch this movie. And then it, it, it had all these little parties all over town. So everybody could watch this movie, but nobody wanted to have their girlfriends or anyone near. It was just like these groups of guys watching this movie. And it was looking back now, it's hilarious. But that's what I remember about the olden days when this came out. Now, once I started watching the movie and over the years, I fell in love with it for the rest of the stuff you're talking about, the plot, the acting, the drama, the music, all of that. But back in the day, that's all everybody was talking about was Sharon Stone and her uh, interrogation scene. Yeah. I saw this three times in the theater, uh, and oh. not because of that scene, but uh, oh. just because people I wanted, who people I hung out with wanted to go see it, including Lori. I saw this movie with Lori. <laughs> I now have a new appreciation for that woman. So uh, I saw the on opening night with my girlfriend. So at that point in time, no word of mouth. I knew nothing about the scene, if you will. Uh, and okay. when it happened, I was like, did, 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 that, did, did I just see what I thought I saw? And I remember my girlfriend, um, like, yeah, I like, and she was like, I can't believe that, that she did that on camera, but I'm like, okay. And then I know I went back with a, uh, a girlfriend of a friend of mine who really wanted to see it. And her boyfriend had seen it and said, he didn't, he didn't like it and he didn't want to watch it again. Um, so I went and saw it with him. And then ultimately I went and saw it with Lori, which is really <laughs> awkward because Lori's pretty, uh, somewhat prudish. Sorry, Lori, you are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she wanted to see it and we saw it. And I, I, I was, I, I liked it the first time, and not just for because of the, the nudity or that specific scene, but I thought right. the film was pretty interesting. I thought it was well made and I, I thought it was really captivating. I'm not surprised that it became a box office hit. I am surprised mm. now to look at it and see critics say 56% audience yeah. or sorry, for uh, critics as far as a rating, which, you know, makes it kind of rotten. But I will also say I have not seen it in God, probably over 20 years and mm-hmm. it did not hold up as well as I thought it was going to. Okay. I, I mean, there are things that I remember. I, I know I saw the plot holes in the film back then too, but 
they were really bothering me this time as I was watching right. it. Uh, specifically, the, the end of the film always bugs me uh, in the fact that he read her book, or at least the excerpt of the book. <laughs> That's why he rushes in the building to save Gus, is he knows what's going to happen. There's She wrote the book. There's only one person who would be able to recreate that scene in the book and kill Gus. That would mm-hmm. be Catherine. And yet his mind turns to shit and believes that Beth is the killer for some God awful reason at that moment in time, even though we have been led to believe throughout the entirety of the film that it's Catherine Trammell. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm one of those. I really, really like this movie because of the various uh, the plot tw- or the story twists and all that. And you're trying to figure out, is Catherine really, really the person is Roxy, the person, how can all these plot points and all these plot holes, as you mentioned, co- all come together and make a entertaining movie. I find this movie very entertaining and I don't get how it's a 50, 60% critic score. It just doesn't make sense. But I really, really enjoy the storyline. I enjoy the acting. I enjoy the music. I enjoy how it all comes together because it's very, very unique and you don't get very many high budget movies or credible movies that come out this way. But when you get to that section of the movie you're talking about, I always think the last third of the movie gets rushed along way too much. I think they start throwing you a lot of stuff at you that you're supposed to process. And I think you sort of feel it in Nick's mind when he's trying to absorb all this stuff about Beth and the stuff about Catherine uh, at school and all that. And then you get to that one scene that you're mentioning where he's reading the excerpt of the book coming off of Catherine's printer and then realizes what's going on. And I agree that is the one weird plot point, but that is Catherine's genius in my interpretation where she's able to make it all in print, but yet somehow it all plays out and yet she still gets an alibi out of it she gets away with it all scot-free and that's the i find the absurd beauty but yet the entertaining beauty of it all i i can understand why some people think it doesn't hold up and that's cool i just have always found it to be one of the more entertaining movies of the 90 for all the weirdness and all the uniqueness that this movie brought to the world at that point in time well you know i and as much as I say I have problems with it, I still enjoy it. I still think mm-hmm. it's well made, high production value. Uh, yeah, I I have, you know, now that I'm fifty, uh, I look at Michael Douglas and I go, he was probably too old for this role. <laughs> to, okay. To play. I, I I I didn't necessarily buy that a lot. I thought Sharon Stone was uh, excellently cast, and yeah. I, I think there's a little bit of Catherine Tremell and Sharon Stone. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. I kind of perceive the actress in most of her roles, although she had very similar roles for a few years after this and ha- hasn't done as, as much other, th- other uh, genres of films uh, as much as she probably should have. Um, but if you're going to get pigeonholed for something, this is probably something you get pretty, <laughs> pr- pretty well pigeonholed for. I, I got to give her credit that this was a daring performance because it, it, she is laid out. I mean, just not only just physically, uh, mm-hmm. vulnerable and uh, and nude and th- for the the world to see but uh, you know she she, she she I mean she really had to take on a lot in this film 
uh, for this character and for an actress who was essentially, I mean, she, I mean, she'd been in films, but she'd never been a lead in a film. Yeah. Uh, she handled it very, very well. Yeah, I thought she was perfect. And I, well, as I was watching it this time, I can't think of a major actress or even a, like a secondary actress back in the no- early 90s who could have stepped into this role and taken it over the way she did and uh, made it her own. And you'll never forget her. And anybody who ever sees her will never forget her as Catherine Trammell in this movie. I mean, she did great in Casino and some other movies down the way. But she's always going to be Catherine Trammell. I mean, no matter what you think, uh, she she had to have a lot of guts to do this. As you were saying, she had to expose herself in every way, shape, or form to in this movie. And she did it very convincingly. And now I look around at sociopaths that I know exist in this world, and I'm like, man, they did a perfect job of putting her character on that screen. All right. Now, actors and actresses and directors sometimes talk about how nudity was essential for the role. And Mm -hmm. uh, and this film had a tremendous amount of nudity uh, from both the two male leads, but Mm -hmm. Sharon Stone in particular, uh, although uh, uh, Gene Triplehorn also had a actually a a pretty surprising nude scene, uh, considering that she really hasn't done anything like that in the rest of her career that I remember. But this is a mm-hmm. very, very early role. You know, do you think the nudity in this was gratuitous or necessary for the story? Necessary for the story. I mean, I'm one of those that I stopped to think about that as well as I was trying to put some notes together. I think this is one of those few cases where you needed it for the the whole story and the whole movie to be taken seriously because of the, how the opening scene takes place. You couldn't just sort of like shoot around it. Uh, There's no way there's too much going on uh, between the Johnny Boz and the mysterious blonde and how the, you get the murder scene. And then you have to have it down the road when uh, Catherine and Nick are together both times. It really has to be that way. Now, the scene with Nick and Garner, that's uh, uh, that's fine. I've seen it both in the extended version and the theatrical version, and it sort of that one could have been brought backwards just a little bit just because you just need to see the aggression in him. You don't have to see anything too violent or ex- exposed, but... Um, I think the ones where Catherine is involved, yeah, you really did need to have it out there so then you would get the full effect of what the crime was and then is she going to do it again down the road? Well, and I will agree with you on that. Like the, the Gene Triplehorn scene, I guess it, by urban legend is that that was that was a rehearsal scene that was not she was not intended to do a nude scene mm-hmm. uh and her bra popped open during the kind of michael douglas's aggression and you can kind of see him trying to cover her up with his arm like when they switched positions uh so she's not as vulnerable and they ended up using that scene i i agree that was a little gratuitous i didn't think it was necessary uh the the rest of it that follows immediately following that showing his kind of arousal and aggression uh that i thought was important to it but the nudity wasn't important and of course i cannot go without saying 
I didn't need to see Michael Douglas's ass. I <laughs> that was unnecessary in that particular scene. I mean, it's it was kind of funny. I remember people laughing in the theater for, with it because it wasn't a great ass, but it's oh. <laughs> yeah, I was just always one of those that it's um, even like when he's watching her change clothes. I think it's very appropriate because one, it sets up what's going to happen at the. Um, the interrogation scene, but it's like also saying she's fearless. She doesn't care. She is going to go about her business and deal with it. So I, uh, I'm just one of those that still believes that she, you needed it to set up who Catherine was and to make sure everybody understood she is a fearless woman and everything that gets thrown at her, she's going to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that they, they, they meet the, that kind of openness, if you will, is that, you know, she's changing with an open door uh, so he can see in, not wearing the underwear. And she knows that he knows she's not wearing any underwear, um, that this, they're implying this, I have nothing to hide, you know, literally, which, which is what she says in the film. But they're showing that also visually at the same time that, that she has, she does not hide behind any kind of a semblance of, of putting something between her and uh, her prey or the people who are chasing after, if you will. All right. Uh, this film got criticized in its time for negative de negatively depicting uh, homosexuals, spe specifically the lesbian relationship between uh, uh, Roxy and uh, Catherine. And looking at it now, at the time, you didn't have the portrayal of a lot of, uh, you know, lesbian relationships on the film and the fact that you potentially made both of them <laughs> homicidal killers, <laughs> it, it, you know, I can see what their criticism was, but mm -hmm. now in the context of other films made today, I don't find it nearly as offensive, I guess, uh, today is in the fact that there's many depictions of uh, homosexual characters in many films that are obviously not homicidal killers. Mm -hmm. uh, did that bother you when you saw it back then? I, you know, I read the same type of stuff as I was doing research for this podcast and, you know, it didn't bother me then. It doesn't bother me now. Cause I just think once again, uh, from the Catherine point of view, she's a very open person and whether she's going to have a relationship with a man or a woman, she's going to have a relationship with a man or a woman. I think Roxy was just, she was a lesbian. So it was what it was that you may, I, my thought is you now have to look at who they are as individuals, as killers and that's what you're supposed to look at whether they're straight by uh gay whatever i mean i that part of it i don't care about i look at them more as Catherine, roxy um hazel they're all killers and that's the point of it what their sexuality is never really even came into mind for me that you know gay people can be devious killers or something of that nature i guess that's just my upbringing and my belief system but i always looked at it more who they are as murderers and that's what you're supposed to focus on well i mean it, it's a, the idea that uh, i think at least the attack at that time is that the all the lesbian characters you had in this film had a homicidal background but right. they weren't yeah, the only homicidal they weren't they weren't the only killers nick killed the tourists yeah. while he was on drugs <laughs> so and you know it he, he got away with it and he got covered up but he's a killer as well and i think they mm -hmm. kind of gloss over that 
part. It was just it was just part of the story. I, I, thought, I don't think it was intended to con- convey the message that all lesbians are killers. It just unfortunately, I think in 1992 that you know representation didn't you didn't have as many character uh, uh, homosexual characters in films other mm-hmm. than a film such as like Longtime Companion, which was about homosexuality and um, and about relationships between people suffering from hates. So. Uh, yeah. Anything else? Last film? I I just would like to always say I love this the the cinematography of this movie and how they used San Francisco and the Bay Area and all that. I think it was just gorgeous to look at. They shot it so well. The Catherine's Beach House was so gorgeous to look at. Um, like when Nick is chasing everybody through the streets of San Francisco, it takes you back to when Michael Douglas was on that famous tv show as well and then i also really like the music i thought the score to this was beautiful i still caught up by the music of this one i really really like it i used to have the score of it on my apple system someplace and i don't know where it went to but it somehow got deleted but i really really like the music in this one yeah jerry goldsmith doing the score worked with uh paul verhoven on total recall just a couple of years before this also has sharon stone in it the uh, cinematographer, Jean Debont, uh, who went on to become his, his own director and created Speed and I believe he filmed Speed 2, but uh, he made quite a few action films following this, uh, had a, a his own directing career that came and a successful directing cre- career that came after this. Right. Uh, but I do agree with you. One of my favorite films representing uh, San Francisco as a whole. I mean, it, it's... It is beautifully shot. It's not nearly as gritty or as uh, dirty as something like 48 Hours, which also shot yeah. in San Francisco, uh, which probably is a little bit more realistic. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this is this is this is everybody's everybody's a pretty person. Everybody, with the exception of Wayne Knight, uh, every, <laughs> everybody is driving fancy cars and living in nice apartments and nice exotic beach houses. I mean, it's everything is just it's coming right out of the 80s. You know, that kind of almost greed is good mentality reaching back to another Michael Douglas film that it's just it, it's you could see that kind of like everybody would want to live here type of thing. And I always said, if I had a, if I was in a cop film and I had to have a cop buddy, I would want George Zunza to be my cop buddy. I don't know. I just find him to be a very pleasant uh, cop uh, in or authority figure from Law and Order in this movie. Uh, he's just great. I love watching him act. No, I, no, I loved him as kind of the the sidekick to Michael Douglas. I thought he was great. I added a lot of comedy relief to the film in the entirety. Uh, so I, I appreciated. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, most of the cast, I, I, I'm hard pressed to think anybody who was bad. Uh, yeah. I, I thought everybody was really, really good. As much as I give shit that Michael Douglas was probably a little too old for a matching with Sharon Stone, um, I don't. I, it wasn't to the point where it was distracting for me. Uh, I think it still worked. Uh, and you know, this, although he wasn't, I wouldn't say his career was, you know, in the toilet or anything like this this kind of supercharged it again because i know he you know shortly after this he's doing disclosure with demi moore uh, another another film that was kind of racy in its time although nowhere near this or fatal attraction (laughs) exactly yeah well after it's all said and done on a scale of one to five do you consider this film a bad one or do you give it a high five uh this is a four point five for me i really really like this movie to this day i 
I understand why some people think it's over the top or um, uh, too much nudity, too much blood, too much killing, too much of a the sexual topic, whatever. I just find this one so unique and so different compared to movies of that generation. And even today, I just think it was so well done. I Like I said, the final third of it gets to be a little bit too fast forward for me, but uh, high speed, but I think it's still great. And it's just awesome. I can watch it not very often, say like every five to 10 years and still just enjoy it so much. And that's why I recommended it for this podcast because it is a lot of fun to watch. Sharon Stone, Michael Douglas, George Zanza, everybody who's in this, I really got a kick out of watching it again. Uh, Gene Triplehorn, another one. It's just a great movie, and I highly recommend it to folks who may not have seen it. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, back in 1992, I would have told you this is a four and a half. Now mm-hmm. I'm going to say 3.75. Uh, okay. some, of the, <laughs> some of the plot holes to me are a little bit too glaring. They kind of like... We're just going to forget why we were rushing in the building to save Gus element <laughs> that, you know, you knew he was going to get killed because you read Catherine's book uh, <laughs> and forgetting that, that, you know, she was potentially the killer. And it and one thing I don't I, I don't like as much now. I don't like seeing the the uh, ice pick at the, at the very end of the film. Uh, I, yeah. I like the ambu- if you're going to go with ambiguity, I mean, with that, you're going, no, she was the killer. She was the killer yeah. the whole time. I get you. Yeah. I, I really wish they wouldn't have done that. I think they should have left it uh, ambiguous so that the audience could have just debated the issue. And I think that would have been more solid of a film. Uh, we didn't bre- discuss that there's a rated and unrated version of this film, but the unrated version right. is only slightly longer, like yeah. by a minute. And it just yeah. has additional cuts, usually of the violence scenes, not so much the mm-hmm. sex scenes but that does not change the story at all in any way, shape or form. But uh, I, I too still like the film. I still would recommend the film, obviously not for children, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I, I think it still holds up pretty well uh, for that time frame. And having not watched it for a couple of decades, I, I enjoyed watching it. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Yep. Good. I'm glad we got to talk about it. Yep. All right, well, that's it for our review of Basic Instinct. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comment section. And for our listeners over on MovieHouseMemories.com, please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you've enjoyed today's review, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHN Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. All right, until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chad. And this concession stand is now closed. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Rock On Brudda is brought to you by Marwan Nimra at natintine.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Concessions, the MHM Podcast Network, 
and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.